when you tell me that we're gonna be in movies They make out like it's so hard, but there's really nothing to it I love it when you tell me that we're gonna be in movies I don't mind dying if that's how we gotta do it Hello Good day Good Labor Day, as a matter of fact Today is Labor Day Although, by the time you listen to this, it will not be Labor Day anymore, but I hope you had a good one. Welcome to another edition of Make It Big, the podcast that explores the meaning of success in the arts. This week, a very cool podcast with an old friend of mine, Steve, who I knew was a badass drummer, still a badass drummer, but has turned into a badass crime fiction writer, so going under the pen name of S.W. Loudon, L-A-U-D-E-N. He has a novel, his first novel, coming out actually on Rare Bird Books. It is called Bad Citizen Corporation, and it's coming out this October. He also has a novella, Crosswise, coming out in 2016. He's working on a screenplay. He has an audio series. Go to badcitizencorporation.com to check him out. Really impressive guy. I've known him forever. Previously in rock bands, he's a he's just a super killer rock drummer. Was signed to A and M Records with Rydell High, signed to Hollywood Records with Czar, and I sat down to talk to him after he read at the last bookstore in Los Angeles. He read a short story, a very short story. Um, it was the deal was you had to write and read either an excerpt or a story that you had just written in a minute. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. He read a story called Bat Sabbath, which you can find uh, on his website. And he's just a really hardworking guy, uh, someone who has always seemed to be in the right place at the right time, but also made it work through his own hard work and the opportunities that he's made for himself. So we talk about that a lot. Uh, it's a pretty long podcast this time around, or a long interview, I should say. You know, I should have uh, taken some publishing advice and, and maybe made it shorter, but uh, it was interesting. I think you'll find it interesting and, you know, break it up into two parts if you want, because there's a lot to cover, a lot about his current fiction writing career and then his career in music, which uh, is still ongoing, so... I think it's super cool. Uh, again, if you want to hear some of his music, go to check out Rydell High or Czar uh, or some of the other stuff that he's done. You poke around on the internet and you can find him. But anyway, S.W. Loudon. I want to get to the interview quickly. Brief news, Radish's show coming up September 22nd in Manhattan at the Delancey. Uh, another one coming up at Best Bar on October 2nd. Uh, should be interesting. New Radishes shows. Got more episodes coming up as well because I just got back from a two-week trip to California and I talked to a couple other strip miners. But I wanted to get this up first because I knew I threatened to only do my bandmates, but this kills two birds with one stone because we talk about music and we talk about fiction writing. So I think it's really interesting. And without further ado, let's hear from Mr. Steve W. Loudon. Uh, cool, man. So we're rolling. And so I think I told you a little bit about the concept of uh, the show. 
So it's called Make It Big. And it's it really came from moving to New York and having that song in my head, like, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And I'm like, I just started thinking, what the hell does that mean anymore? Especially in a, in music, you know, where everything is, is streaming and it's all the models are sort of changing really in everything. And I really wanted to talk to you as a cross media success story and a, you know, a, a guy who's always doing something, you know, and because I just saw you read, let's talk first about crime fiction. How long have you been writing fiction? I know you as a badass drummer motherfucker. And yeah. so now all of a sudden you, you get a book, two books being published, a screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> what, my God, when did it start? Like, how did, how did you start writing fiction? Or, or have you ever always written fiction? I, I haven't always written fiction. I think uh, music and, and fiction ha went hand in hand for me, sort of in that, that pivotal sort of 14, 15, 16-year-old phase of your life where you're trying to kind of figure out yeah. what it is you're going to do and what your passions are and what you're interested yeah. in, how to meet girls. Um, right. <laughs> and I, I, I had a friend, it's a friend that we have in common named Greg, and... Um, like in my mind, he handed me um, the, um, uh, a replacements record yeah. and a Kurt Vonnegut book, like, like at our first band day. practice, you know. Like and and although all those things didn't happen at the same time, it, my my head kind of like got blown by literature and rock and roll kind of at the same time. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. And so they've kind of always gone hand in hand, and but rock and roll seemed like a much more fun thing to pursue as a young person. And I think I sure. always kind of knew in the back of my head that like writing was a thing that I would do, but I really wanted to pursue as a, as a, as a young guy, I really wanted to pursue rock and roll because that's really very much a young man's game. That's did you, <laughs> did you think about it that way when you were 14 or 15? No, or but I mean, like, when you're 14 or 15, I can rock out on but, the drums and it's fucking awesome. And you know, there, no, there was quite a lot of that for sure, right? Yeah, but no, no. But I think that's why it's a young man's game, right? It's it's it it it's given the choice at 16 years old. Right. Do you want to be in a rock band and tour the world and do all the things that rock bands do, or do you want to lock yourself up for two years and write a book? Yeah. You know, the 16 year old's going to pick drumming and touring the world and being in a rock band. True. Um, yeah. I not mean, a lot of my peers were writing books at that time, you know. It is much more of, I guess, like a dedication thing, you know, you, the, the archetypal writer really is locked up, you know, you have to sort of be in order to have time to write all those words. And I guess back then, too, just the way musicians were portrayed as opposed to writers, it was like, well, the musician's life looks like a lot more fun than the writers would sometimes like have beards and be wearing sweaters and you know, like. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> Unless you're like Hemingway part, or something. And well, but they, they did for the most part, they felt older, right? Yeah, like, well, that's writers true. always felt older. Even if they were only a couple years older, they, yeah. they just came across as older to a, you know, a guy who was into punk drumming. And, and so, you know, but then, but then it became really obvious as I progressed that I wasn't the only one who had these thoughts, right? Because this yeah. is in the heyday of Henry Rollins getting into spoken word and Jello yep. Biafra getting into spoken word. And through those guys, I got into Spalding Gray. Yeah. And, you know, then I'm, then I'm watching, you know, um, Ray Manzarek do a thing with, you know, Jim Carroll at UCSB. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, so the, the rock and roll aesthetic in writing is something that I've always been really tuned into. Um, and I went and got a journalism degree and actually did journalism. So that was sort yeah. of the connective tissue. So I got a chance to kind of get my rocks off writing that way. Right. Uh, while pursuing music as more of a full-time uh, career. Yeah, for sure. Well, what, so when, 
Was it easier for you to sort of get into fiction having the nonfiction, you know, journalism background? It's like, well, I write all day, every day, you know. And so you sort of have the craft and the discipline of writing. Was it easier for you or, or did you have anything to compare it to, I guess? I, I, they're, they're really different. Um, yeah. it, I've yet to find um, any sort of long-form fiction that I've tried to write or that I've succeeded in completing um, that didn't feel like climbing a big hill when you first start out oh, doing yeah. it. Right? It's just a lot to look at. You know, yeah. 30,000 words, 30,000 publishable words, which means you probably have to write 90 or whatever, um, or 70,000, which is what my novel length is, um, is, is just a lot to look at from the beginning. And so it's just very much like, you know, I guess whatever cliche you want to choose, like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You just kind of yeah. like set the idea out and just start writing. Right, um, right, right. But, you know, the, the stuff that I'm writing now actually wasn't the first stuff I wrote. So when I decided I'm going to actually make a stab at writing fiction, I dreamed up my first novel um, while in the van on tour. Um, and just kind of looking out the window and 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 processing the experiences I was having on the road and wrote this crazy 130,000 word, um, basically alternate alternate history of rock and roll, as though you need an alternate history so of rock and roll. Not just in your head, you were writing it. No, I, I cataloged it, I wrote some notes, we got off the road, and then I sat down to write it. Okay. And, um, you know, that was around 2001, All right. 2002. It was bizarre then. So yeah, so yeah. it was back back in those times we were going into making the second record, right? Um, or I think we were planning it. I don't know where we were at in that process. Um, and I wrote the novel, and it came out to about one hundred thirty thousand words, and it is a sprawling, crazy, um, you know, multi-decade. What what people I'm now realizing who actually write for a living uh, call a trunk novel, meaning it's never going to see the light of day. <laughs> yeah. I got it. I got it out. I got it under my belt. Gathering mold. Yeah. And it's better that way. But that experience told me. Um, you know, a decade later when I decided to sit down and start writing mystery and crime fiction, which I'd become very enamored with as a reader, uh-huh. um, you know, very much the same way that, you know, you, I learned to play punk because I grew up in the shadow of Black Flag and the Descendants and yeah. all those bands in the South Bay. Absolutely. Um, that's what interested me. And so reading crime and mystery fiction um, kind of inspired me to actually, okay, I think I have a story here. I'm going to sit down and try to write this thing now. And I felt like I could do it because I had done it before, even though I hadn't published it. But, so, you, <laughs> you didn't, like, start out with the short story. You're just like, I'm writing this 130,000-word novel, crazy, like, yeah. complex. You weren't, like, baby steps? You're just like, I'm going for it all the way? I was a different man back then, Paul. Oh, I uh, see. No, I, I did, that was very much a, like, I need, to, I, I, was, I need to kind of scrape my soul and get some of this muck out of here. That was, the, that was more of a... Uh, a release, a cleansing. There were some thoughts I needed to get out of my head. Got it. Um, yeah. And so consequently, it's a very all over the place, very crazy, uh, barely cohesive narrative. And not really crime fiction, would you say? It's not at all. I mean, it's okay. literally an alternative history of rock and roll. Like I, I was like, the history of rock and roll is clearly not interesting enough. I'm going to make a parallel universe where everything's just a little bit different. Did it involve real life people and everything though? It was just switched up. No, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like, I'm not saying like chronologically, it was like, you know, here's Bill Haley in the comments. Right, right, right. It was, it was more about um, what it means to be in a band um, and what it means to be in a band and be part of a longer lineage of people. Mm. It's almost like this, 
this sort of baton race where you get your shot, you get your moment, your generation gets to have a shot to kind of add to the overall library of rock and roll music. Right. Um, and then I express that as a band that doesn't have any permanent members. It's just whoever jumps on stage, but everybody knows the songs. And so there's this band that's touring around the country that doesn't, there's no permanent members in the band. And all you have to do is get on stage first and grab an instrument. And then you're in the band that night. Um, and so there's this whole complex history about how it happened and very convoluted. That sounds great. It, it's, it's an interesting concept. And if I could somehow find a way to turn it into a crime or mystery novel, maybe I'd dust it <laughs> off. <laughs> well, let's, so I, I'll, do you feel now that you are, and we'll, we'll talk, actually get into how you got into writing, you know, and, and your, your novel that's coming out now, but do you feel that now you are a crime fiction writer or that you have other stuff in you, but now that you are sort of getting established in the genre, you want to stay true to it. Uh, and that's interesting. So you, you know, you were talking about taking baby steps. Um, yeah. When I decided to write uh, the novel "Bad Citizen Corporation" that, that's actually coming out this October. Yes. Um, I sat down and I wrote that novel, and it is the first in a three-book trilogy, right? So I conceived okay. of this this bigger story arc, but I kind of wanted to break it up because there was a lot to tell, um, and. I wrote the book and then I was, my plan was I, I, I'm just going to self-publish because Kindle has made that really easy to do. Yes. Right? I'll just self-publish it. Um, I didn't want to go through a lot of the things I had gone through with the record industry where you're kind of like hanging out in the right clubs, waiting for the right people to notice you and take you out to dinner and then help you make a demo tape. And there's yeah. just a lot of waiting around that I did in my experience for people to help me do a thing that I should have just known that I could do on my own. Um, yes, there was a, a sort of in my world, there was a little bit of a brass ring approach to getting the big record deal and those kinds of things when, and we did, and it was fun and I've gotten zero complaints about it, but with publishing, I just didn't want to go through that, those steps again, or so I thought, and, but I did start trying to meet some other writers and the advice from them was you should at least let a few other people see it. Don't just like write this thing or, yeah. and publish it. Yeah. Which was what I was going to do. At least for some editorial advice or something, you know, maybe, or just critical or help even feedback, or motivation, feedback, editing, yeah. um, direction, experience, guidance, wisdom. I mean, there was just a lot of good reasons to do it. So I, even though I said I wasn't going to, I started sending out query letters to publishing houses and query letters to agents and, and just watched, um, the rapid rate at which they came back as rejections <laughs> and kind of experienced that part of being yeah, a writer, yeah. which is a, you know, it's the a right of passage. Story. Yeah. Right? And so then I'd kind of gotten the bug and I'm, you know, I'm just competitive, competitive enough that I was like, well, wait a second. I, I, someone's going to take at least read the damn thing. Right. That became the focus. Right. Um, and what I realized a lot of crime and mystery writers do um, and what a lot of them counseled me to do was to start writing short fiction mm -hmm. and try to get that published and establish myself that way. Right. It's also a really great way to learn how to write because I wrote the novel not really knowing how to write and then writing and publishing uh, shorter fiction allowed me to go back and approach the story differently. So the, the, the novel was being molded while I was writing the shorter fiction. In writing the shorter fiction, uh, I kind of started to get an understanding of the publishing universe and crime and mystery. Mm, okay. um, and so that was sort of the journey I took to getting the book done. Is it a small world, would you say, in publishing? Or just or a big world, but very well-defined? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, it's, I, I know, I'm certainly no expert, you know, I'm kind of the new guy still, but it feels like, uh, a lot like the record industry to me. It feels a lot like 
there was this big machine. Right. There were these big publishing houses, and and you know they. I think the number now is like people say five and a half of them still exist because of some. Merger. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the yeah. half means, but. Um, and that definitely exists, and 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 I can definitely process it in terms of what it was like to try to get a big record deal, right? right. You know, um, and and I have not attempted in any way to to crack into that world because I just I think I'll be happy to publish in the indie world and get my feet wet and see what happens from there. Whether that's going for a different publisher or going for a bigger quote unquote bigger thing, or deciding to eventually self-publish the way that I originally intended, I don't know what's gonna what it holds for me. Um, but I, so I process it in that way, and then, and then what became really appealing to me was the the there's a wide range of indie publishers these days. So you you have not only people who are established mid-sized publishing houses, and and they have whatever scale they have, and they publish whatever number they, of books they publish per year. But then you also have writers or um, fiction fans who are able to also take advantage of the e-publishing platforms and they start little publishing companies, right? They just, nobody will publish your book, I'll publish your book. And they, so these little tiny imprints start and they're very much like the little punk labels would start. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they just put out their buddies band or they would put out a couple of bands or they would put out you know bands around a little van tour that they were gonna do. Um, and some of them put out really fantastic work. And so I got, I got really into that world and as I got to know the people started getting a better idea of how I wanted to publish and and kind of finally found the right personality in, in uh, Tyson Cornell at Rare Bird Books, who is right. my publisher. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that you mention that because I don't know much about the publishing industry, but I've you know certainly watched what's happened to the record industry and how everything has changed. And there was really the some friends like, well, we're going to put out our record and, you know, maybe we'll put yours out. And I noticed that I, I never knew this before, but the first Ride L High album was produced by Joey. Cape from Lagwagon? Yeah. Wow. Yes, that was uh, we when when Rydell High was playing around Hollywood a lot. We started playing a lot of shows with bands in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. um, because of you know old friendships I had and then yep. friendships yeah. we made through just being on bills with people. Right. And at the time there was this really crazy good Santa Barbara uh, rock scene, and they were coming into Hollywood and we were going up there, and there were lots of clubs up there, and. Hard to believe. Yeah. 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 It's hard to believe now when you yeah, go to State yeah. Street. Um, but there were quite a lot of places to play at that time. And so we got to know um, some of the people in Santa Barbara in that rock scene. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in Santa Barbara, Lagwagons is is a really big established sure. punk rock band. And, and Joey's a really cool guy. Um, actually, that record was signed as an A&R guy by Marco DeSantis from Sugar Cult. And he was working with Joey on the label at the time. And they had just finished Which the Nerf label? record. At A&M? No, no. So this is oh, my oh, records. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. my, I, mean, I should take a step back. My records was Joey Cape's um, indie label. Oh, and his all right. first thing he put out <laughs> was it. Nerf Herder. We were the second thing he put out. Right. And he put out two comps. Okay, got it. Yeah. Is that label still around? I don't I don't think so. Actually right. Joey's doing a thing now that I don't I don't wanna misquote what it is. I believe it's called one week records or the, the idea is you make a record in a short defined oh, yeah. set of time. Yeah. And okay. then the bands do um package bills together. Was that one of the first things he produced? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. I don't okay. know if he's produced other stuff before that. Cause I feel like he's, he's kind of a, a really super active guy. Like yeah, he's always yeah, yeah. doing really cool stuff. Um, so I wouldn't surprise me if he'd made 10 records before that, you know, we'll talk a little bit. So I knew you obviously always as a drummer. And then I remember you getting 
I remember you being in Rydell High and then seemingly like overnight being signed to to A&M, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, the record we made with uh, My Records got picked up by A&M Records. We had, after we made the record with My Records, we got picked up by um, Rich Egan, who ran a management company and a label called Vagrant. Oh, yeah. They had Face yeah. to Face. Yep. Um, and... Uh, Rich then had a relationship over at A&M because he had brought Face to Face over to A&M. So he brought our record from Joey over to A&M, and they ended up putting a new cover on it and re-releasing it. Did they do anything to it, or it was just a... They changed the cover. And, and that was it? I think they might have remastered, remastered it. Remastered it or yeah. something? Yeah. In my memory, you guys were together only like a year or something after that? I can't... Yeah. Like, the, what was the progression? So you, you know... Because this is sort of part of what the podcast is, like... Now we made it. We got signed to a major label, and it's like, wah, wah, yeah, wah. right. You know? No, there is that sometimes brass maybe ring. it's you know it works out, and and you're the one that gets pushed, and you know whatever you get licensed in the movie, and all of a sudden it's great. But so many times it seems like people now are in the major, and well they didn't put our album out, or you know they put it out but they didn't promote it. So how how was your experience with that? Um. Well, as I referenced earlier, there was like, you know, the bands that I was in, we were definitely always looking for the next thing, yeah. you know, and I think that when I was younger, there was definitely this sense I had that there, that there was, uh, this room that you kind of went into and they put a crown on your head and they go, yeah. you did it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> absolutely. And I think that that's, I mean, in my experience, that's just part of being young. Right. Um, and having big dreams and kind of going for impossible goals, uh, because you can. Yeah. And, and, and not necessarily knowing much about the inner workings of that whole world. Yeah, and, and almost almost like uh, it, it feels really foolish looking back on it now, but like almost like willfully being ignorant about the business side of it, right? Like I yeah, wasn't yeah. I wasn't paying attention to what it really meant um, to sign a, a major label record deal. I liked the stature of it, I liked the sound of it, and I liked the idea of getting a big paycheck. Yeah, that, it, that's an advance, which is essentially a loan. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so. But all of that was exciting because it was just that was the goal. Well, and you're young and you're, you know, like, sure, I'll play rock and roll for a living. Yeah, right. You know, what's and wrong with that? I want to be on that label that has Robin Hitchcock on it, right? Why not? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> He's doing pretty good, yeah. He's still awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we uh, left my records, put the new record back out, and, you know, the timing may not be 100%, but um, essentially, oh, and then in the midst of all that, shot... Of, uh, this is in the day when you could shoot a very expensive music video. Yes, of course. Um, so we shot for the song "Self Destructive." We shot this this kind of very expensive, high production With music video. Jerry Casale and Jerry from Devo directed it, right? And actually plays a part in the video. He's a psychotic, murderous clown. I don't think in I've this ever game seen that. show. I gotta go watch it. Yeah. And uh, so that was a great experience. Right? Yeah. I just got to hang out with Jerry from Devo, which is like a dream come yeah. true. Um, and then the you know the that we started ramping up the marketing and having all the meetings you have at the record label and it's all very exciting. And then basically the day our record came out, half the company got pink slipped. <laughs> I mean, literally the day, you know, um, it's such a classic story, yeah. <laughs> especially then it seemed like, well, I don't know. Cause this is when I saw people going through it, but it seemed like at that time in like the late nineties and early two thousands, that's really when I don't know the turnover or record companies were just shrinking and conglomeratizing. And, you know, it, it, it seemed to be a real problem for a lot of people. Well, yeah. I mean, I think also that might be like perspective, right? Cause that puts us yeah. right in the wheelhouse of when we're mostly going to know people who are 27 years uh, old. Yeah, it's right. True. So it's true. we probably just had a lot of friends who were going, 
but right. it, going through that. But I do remember getting a feeling at a certain point in in this little scene in Hollywood that we were part of that um, like everybody was getting a record deal yeah. to some degree or other. It kind of felt like our little scene had this like moment of like being lucky or being in the right place at the right time or playing the right show or whatever it takes to get those kinds of deals. Um, and I did see a lot of people go, you know, have different experiences. Um, you know, obviously some had more than others, you know, but I, I have very little to complain about because, you know, we got to play a bunch of really cool shows. I'm still very proud of that record. Uh, we got yeah. to go and tour Japan. Like there's, there's little moments along the way to sort of achieving your dream that if you are with it enough, if you're conscious enough of what's going on in the moment are pretty mind blowing. Right. If you can, if you can get your eye off whatever that long term prize is, in the moment you're good, you're doing some really cool stuff. Yeah. Um. And it's it's uh you know it, it, if you can realize that in the moment and actually really enjoy it, um, there's a lot to be said for that lifestyle, right? So it's like if this is about you know making it big, you know you kind of make it big in the moment, right? You're, you're yeah. getting to do do things and see things that very few people get to do and see. Absolutely. And that's really exciting. And I think that definitely, you're exactly right that you can really like have moments where you're like, this is amazing. It's all worth it because of this, you know, and you sort of forget about everything else. Uh, and then, you know, a week later you're complaining again, <laughs> you know, you really have to like think about that and think about how lucky you are to be like, well, I'm doing this now, you know, I shouldn't be complaining at all. Right. Um, but then, you know, it's, well, now I've made it there. Like, what do I do tomorrow? And cause someone's always, well, you know, now, now what are you going to do? What's your next album about or, yeah. or something? Well, you know, there's the, you know, it seems like any artistic pursuit is, is some high percentage of it is a hustle. Yeah. You, 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 there's, it's really hard work. It's really blue collar in a, in a way that you have to chase it down and pursue it. Cause very, very few situations are you going to have somebody just walk up and go like, you know, the Here. great Brady moment yeah. of like you fit the suit. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's you, you have to work really hard to be ready and in the right place if that moment happens yeah. and be prepared to respond to what that opportunity is. And that's what all the groundwork's about. Yeah. All those hours in the garage and all the music that you listen to and idolize and worship and try to emulate is about, you know, from a career perspective, being ready when, when the opportunity knocks. Now, again, being in the moment, making the music and playing the music is its own reward. That should be exciting. But from a career perspective, you do have to put a lot of work in, and it's a big hustle to get that next gig, to get that opening slot, to get on that comp, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How, now that you are sort of working on your own for yourself, you know, you're your own boss, basically, it's, it's you, you're creating everything, you know, as a, a fiction writer. How does that compare to sort of the band dynamic where maybe some person in the band really isn't working that hard or, you know, are you glad not to have to deal with that? anymore does it make it easier or or do you miss it well i you know there's there's a part of me that's really aware that what i'm seeking out on some level is to be connected to an artistic community of people the way that i was when i was in bands fiction is a really good stand-in for that and i've been lucky that the crime and mystery community that i've fallen into 
Uh, and I actually joked with one of the guys in the community. Uh, I just the, the guy who set up the reading we were at tonight. Yeah. Um, he was also a guy that was in bands, and he got into crime and mystery writing way before I did. And he's like, you know, 15, 16 novels deep or novellas deep. And um, we always joke that it's it's very similar. We're older, but it is a group of people who are very passionate about a shared thing. Um, and they all know that it's it's a big struggle um, and the likelihood of any kind of quote unquote mainstream or commercial success is extremely unlikely. So they're very supportive of each other. Yeah. Um, and that is a dynamic that I missed um, in the years since I was doing music full time or playing the clubs a lot um, is that sort of camaraderie you get out of the shared common passion yeah, for music. Absolutely. And just having the same shared experiences and just sort of knowing what everyone's going through and yeah, it's all ha- having the same like language about stuff too. It's, it's, it, it can't be underestimated. And it's like uh, looking back on, you know, those days when I was with Rydell high, um, I have some of my fondest memories are like bizarre little quiet moments and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, at backstage at the whiskey before you go on yeah. or like, watching the band that plays after you and being in the crowd and remembering right. like, this is awesome. Like these guys are great and what a fun show. And yeah. this is yeah. the best night These are ever. all my friends and yeah. Yeah. And, and so I do have those little romantic moments and I think time has given me the, the ability to, to judge them as these golden moments because I have a little bit of distance from it now. Well, what about, how does it compare to, you know, maybe you never had this because your bands were tight enough groups of, of friends, but did you ever feel like, well, I'm just the drummer, mm-hmm. you know, and now you're the front man, basically? <laughs> I've gone solo. Uh, yes, right? you've gone solo. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't. That's uh, it's hard for me to judge if I was ever just the drummer. I mean, I'm. I was a. Uh, I was always pretty showy and always kind of, ch- you know, trying to at least grab my piece of the of the spotlight. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, I never felt like I was in a band where I, I was looked at as as not as valuable as everybody else. Right, like, you right. know, being a drummer is a weird thing because it, it, you, you're the butt of a lot of jokes and, and, and uh, you know, you get accused of not being truly musical or in my case, I'm not even a songwriter. Like I was, I was just a straight four on the floor rock drummer. Yeah. Um, and you're like, give me your song and I'll make it more awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Or like, I, I really wanted to roll up my sleeves and be involved. Right. Yeah. And, and, and shape the song and make it better and be part of that group dynamic, being mm-hmm. part of a team. Um, you know, and, and, and drummers get, you know, it's, we earn, we earn the sort of brain dead, you know, uh, stereotype to a certain degree, or at least I did for sure. Um, <laughs> and, but, but I think it, when you really look at it, it's like, you're this like engine, you're this, you're the metronome, you're the... You're the thing at the base of the song that keeps it pumping and going along. Um, And so it's this crucial role, Mm -hmm. um, but it is definitely not a front of the stage lead singer role. It's not, but you and some other great drummers really make it more showy, uh, which is awesome. Because I think a great drummer, no matter, even if they're not trying to be showy, it's just like they can't help it because it's such a physical feat and you can really see what they're doing. Yeah. Whereas sometimes with a guitar player, if they're just bent over, like you don't really get the physical part of it. Whereas drummers, it it it's really and it can make the the whole performance more energetic, you know. Yeah. Even if the front person is like lacking a little, you know, it's like wow, that drummer is killing it. 
I had we had a road manager um, in Czar who actually used to refer to me as the band's sprinter because it was just like we would go from song to song pretty fast and the yeah. tempos were always much faster live yeah. um, than they were in the recorded material. And I would just come off stage soaking wet, yeah. you know, and, and some of that was sweat and, and some of that was beer and some of it was whiskey. But it was right. it was, you know, it was a very physical endeavor for me. Yeah. Um, and I I tried to allow myself to not hold back, you know, cause it's like when I was younger, I always had this thing where I stuck my tongue out when I played drums and people used to mock me for it, you know, and, or I would <laughs> really? like throw my arms around and uh-huh. I was always kind of sweaty and I, I just didn't make l- drumming look very sexy cause it was just sort of this like blobby, like, Wah! I'm just going to throw myself <laughs> at this thing. Yeah. And, uh, I had to just kind of grow to accept no that. No holds barred. Yeah. Well, yeah. But it was the only way that I could do it. Right. Yeah. Like all your limbs are moving yeah. and I'm oh, playing yeah. fast and I'm, and I'm, and I try to hit really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I just, it, it, I was so passionate about it, um, that I really just wanted to like, give it my all, whatever that meant, you know? And I was never like the like Matthias drummer and I was never like the best metronome. Um, but I had my thing. There was a way I played drums that was pretty unique to me. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. and I, and I feel proud about that. And I feel like I, I, I get the satisfaction that I really poured myself into something and I was able to reap some fantastic experiences from it. Well, it, it's also funny because in music, talking about you know what it means to be successful, I think sometimes I feel most successful when you know I've written a song and we've recorded it and it's come out like the way I imagine it. And I'm like, wow, we did a really good job with that song. And that's always like a proud, like, moment of wow you know i thought about it at some point and then you know we put it together and we recorded it and now it's a thing so but that's always like the kernel that you start with this like you know perfect seed or something and but you need to plant it and have it grow and into something else because you want other people to hear it i think generally and it's got to be the same as a writer you know like you said you you're as soon as you started talking some other writers are like we should probably show this to some other people because you're not you know just writing to have it in your in your trunk, you know? Yeah. So does it feel... Well, let's actually go through, keep with the progression. So Ride El High, you put the album out, and everyone goes away at the label, and what happens? Uh, we got dropped with the record. Uh, uh, my memory is that we weren't able to place it elsewhere because it had already come out twice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you sell that record a third time. Third time to charm. Um, <laughs> And, and then, so we just started recording new material and just doing what you do, right? Like even, even through all of those great opportunities and and fun things we got to do, it was just like at the end of it, you're still just a band, right? And what you do is you make music and all the other stuff was, was like, you know, icing. And so we just went back to making music and, but you know, it, it, it would be, not true to say that it wasn't at that point strained because we've also kind of been through a lot together yeah. and been through, you know, something that was, it was pretty disappointing to, to have the record go down that way after like making this video and getting signed and, and getting ready to have this thing come out. And that's like a cliff. It's not yeah. even like a gentle downslope. It's just like, no, sorry. Yeah. That album that you've been telling everyone about that you're going to go on tour on. No, yeah. it's not going to happen. Right. And we got, you know, so, so we started making new music and, and, uh, I was, you know, just living the life of a rock drummer. Um, I still had some money squirreled away from that record deal. and um, Smart man. Yeah, it, well, yeah, it wasn't a lot, but I didn't, sure. it, it didn't take a lot to <laughs> live on in, in those days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but then um, 
I can't really say exactly how it went down, but um, basically at a certain point, some some very old friends of mine, from one from high school and a couple from college, had in the meantime started a band um, that was called Stupid Girl, <laughs> and they were playing around. Uh, they were playing around L.A. and you know just slugging it out the way you do in the clubs, and and uh, they asked. They were starting to get a little bit of interest in Silver Lake when they were playing at the Spaceland all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And their um, drummer wasn't able to play a show, and so they asked me to come in, fill in for a show. Um, and so I filled in for the show and then, uh, they asked me if I wanted to be in the band full time. And that was right around the time they were changing their name from stupid girl to czar. Right. Um, and then like, you know, kind of like in very short order, like, uh, they had secured a, a pretty strong management team and then labels started coming around and, and, uh, you know, I, in that case, I felt very much like, you know, um, while they were really good friends of mine and we had established relationships, um, that I was joining, I, I jumped on a train that was already moving. I didn't sure. feel as responsible for getting that train moving right. down the tracks. Right. Um, and so really quickly, um, we played some shows and, and um, got our act together and got to a point where we had a couple record labels knocking and ended up signing a deal with Hollywood Records. Yeah, I remember you had, didn't you have a residency one month at Spaceland and like in the second show you got signed? <laughs> it was something ridiculously fast. And I'm yeah. like, how does Steve do it? Yeah. <laughs> what right. the hell? <laughs> I, like I said, I wish I could take responsibility for that one. In the case of, you know, in the case of Czar, it was, it was they already had a fully, a fully formed idea yeah, of yeah. what that band was supposed to be. Yep. And a lot of the songs were written. And, um, and I just came in and, and approached it the way that I do, and it seemed to gel with the band. And um, it, it kind of just gelled really fast for us um, in terms of being a, a really loud, fast, powerful rock band. Like that, that's what we Absolutely. hit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and that seemed to connect with people, um, well, right I feel away. Like you and them and sort of all of us had that like power pop and like glam rock love. So it was, you know, all coming from the same place, really. You didn't need to like figure out like what everyone likes or whatever. And it was, well, you talk you know. about you talk about having a shared language. Like yeah. the guys that I ended up in this band with, from you know friends from college. One of the guys was actually in my one of my first bands in high school. Yeah, um, <clears throat> uh, really weaned on a lot of the same music. Right? Absolutely. So, so is it when you you don't have when you have a shorthand for oh that's just like that David Bowie thing or mm -hmm. why don't we go for a, a T Rex thing here. Um, you can do that without almost with a nod, yeah, absolutely. Because you just know that music inside and out. Yeah. Because like every musician's a super fan, yeah. And and so having that common language just made it really easy to kind of understand where the songwriting was coming from. And you know, Jeff is a, a very is a very uh, precise songwriter. He writes really fantastic songs, in my opinion. Yes. And uh, so even even the drum parts are kind of mostly imagined by him. And then I can add a flair. Or I can try to achieve what it is that's in his head. Right. But he's he's a very complete songwriter. It's mm -hmm. not like I got this riff, let's figure it out. It's like here's no. the song. It's not like let's get jam and you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I brought I, I I bring my style to it as, mm -hmm. as did Solomon, as did Dan Kern, and and it was a real blast. Like you know that period was just the 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 real quick pace at which people wanted to do things with us and give us opportunities. Yeah. And. Uh, it, was really kind of mind blowing and a very exciting time in my life. Um, 
So, and, and I actually thank those guys a lot for like letting me come on board for that. So was it like a year or two after Rideau High got dropped that you were signed again to on, on Hollywood or? Um, you know, my memories aren't always perfectly clear of these things, but let's say it's about a year. Yeah. 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 Were you like, wow, okay, here we go again. And, you know, did you, did you feel like you had, you're like, I'm going to read this contract better or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) You were supposed to read the contract. (laughs) That's what the lawyers are for. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, czar was like, so specifically this like, let's just let it all go moment Mm -hmm. that like, we signed our record deal in a booth at our favorite bar at two o'clock in the afternoon. Like, it, like we were kind of like living that life. Yeah. And, yeah. And so like it was a dark bar and well, I don't course. think anybody read the contract. We just said like, it looks like a blank line sign. And there, everyone and, had you know? sunglasses on. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was just like, I, you know, and, and, and I know that I was, I said I was willfully ignorant about the business side of it and it was very true, but like there's, I never really encountered a record deal where I was like, well, if I really hash this out and negotiate it, it's going to be better for me. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a record deal. Yeah. And somebody's putting up a lot of money to take a risk on you. Right. Um, and they can be better and they can be worse. And, and I could have been, definitely been smarter about it. But like, that's not what I was signing. That piece of paper was me signing my name to a dream. Yeah. And, yeah. and so good way to put it. I didn't. You must be a writer. Yeah. yeah. Right. Signing my name to a dream. <laughs> I don't write that kind of fiction. Name of your next yeah. I signed my name to a dream in clown blood. Right. <laughs> I signed my name to a nightmare. Yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, what... So, going through the progression, uh, I mean, again, looking at it, it just seemed like a rocket ship. Like, all of a sudden, no, oh, we're signed, and we're making the record. And I remember you guys took quite a long time to make the record because, you know, it was so precise. And was you had Rob Cavallo... Yeah, Rob Cavallo yeah. Um, was actually who signed. Uh, he and Marshall Altman signed us to Hollywood Records, mm-hmm. and then Rob agreed to produce the record. Right. Um, and what that ended up meaning was we recorded at really well established big name studios. Yeah, didn't you with do big Ocean producers. Way or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like. It was a really also an interesting period for me um, because that that was the moment. Like, so the Ride All High record was made. It was a punk record, mm-hmm. or it was made by Joey Cape on yeah. a, an indie label out of Santa Barbara yeah. that got picked up by a major. Yeah, but it wasn't made by a major. Right. Making a record for a major meant suddenly I had to learn to play to a click track, and you know, um, the the expectations on me were different. So that was kind of a little bit of a stressful time because I'd always been kind of a freewheeling. You know, who cares about time? Kind of yeah, drummer. it's all about and, the rock. Uh, right, yeah. It's just as long as the, the snare fill sounds like you're falling down a staircase, that's a win. <laughs> um, and so, you know, th- there was also a great deal of work to do. And so we were woodshedding. I mean, we did, we definitely yeah. say what you will about that first record, but we put in a lot of time oh, yeah. trying to get it as right as we could. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when we went in, it was a, it was a pretty long process. Um, but, you know, crazy mind-blowing experiences with where we tracked and how we tracked and you know um the opportunities we were given were just so incredible and kind of unbelievable that you in that one you really i had the sense i was just kind of strapping myself in for yeah you're like okay because it that one was the where i really felt like Okay, I don't I don't know how we ended up here. I don't know how I personally ended up right. in this Right. This is situation. a different world. Yeah. 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 And so that you know, and the, and the you know, having the journalist eye or whatever you want to call it, having, you know, 
trained to be at least a little bit observant um, and, and trying to get a little distance from the, the sort of craziness that I was experiencing with all that and how excited I was and how much fun we were having and, you know, that coupled with, with terror. Um, <laughs> uh, I kind of landed on being a tourist in, in this sort of like fantasy land um, and just was like, huh. That was weird. Look, another weird thing happened, you know, and that was awesome. And we get to go to this party now, you know, and (laughs) yeah, it was just, even now, a lot of it doesn't seem real to me. What was the experience? There's something on, you know, I mean, I know that record so well, but I, you know, in researching for this, I went on Wikipedia and it was something about, you know, their debut album was less than financially successful for the label. It was something like that. Yeah. And I thought that's so perfect because there it is. Like you've got to attach a dollar figure to it always, you know, it's like, yeah. it's not good enough that it's a really great record. It's like, well, yeah, but it didn't really make a lot of money for the label. So it's, it's gotta be like that side note of the business side of things, I guess. Yeah. Well, we, you know, I think we live in a culture people want that kind of information. Certain people want to know the whole story or certain people are interested in the business side of it. And, and I think that whoever wrote that on Wikipedia or what a combination people yeah. just are catering to who they think the reader is. Sure, and sure. and at, in the end, really, that's a kind way of saying the record tanked. It just it did. It didn't sell very well. But they also didn't they hold it for like a year or something, and it was gonna be. Am I thinking of the next? Oh one? no, no. The second record, they they sat on it. Okay. For for a while, um, and that was a totally different experience, right? Within within Czar, um, we had this really awesome momentum build up. Got the chance to make this crazy, unbelievable record. Yeah. Um, with really high production values, something I'm still very proud of. Oh yeah, even though it didn't amazing. sell well or isn't a record that very many people are familiar with, um, it is sonically a very pretty record, and I think they brought Jeff's songs to life in a really awesome way. Yeah. Um, by contrast, the second record was much scrappier. We recorded it in like a house that was slated to be demolished in the hills above Spaceland and Silver Lake, and uh, you know, I. I, you know, I was playing my drum tracks in sort of a concrete crawl space off of this little like weird room in the back. It was really cool. Wasn't that sort of on purpose though? Wasn't like an aesthetic decision to like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm influenced by hearing from Jeff Whalen, but you know, yeah. of like, well, we don't need all that fancy production value and we got to get back to the, I remember him telling me that the sophomore record is always like the band start, the songs get slower and like you know, sappier and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to make sure he kept it harder. We actually went harder. Yeah. We absolutely. went faster and louder and crunchier, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I get, I guess it's hard. It, it's hard for me from the position that I was in, in the band, um, to know exactly artistically if the songs were written in any kind of response to the, Mm. what we'd been through Mm -hmm. or if they're channeling any kind of angst or anger or disappointment. I mean, I think to a certain degree they must based on a couple of the lyrics. Um, but I wouldn't know for sure what was coming out of Jeff's head at that time. I know that overall we were moving into a much more frantic, angry, jagged, um, phase of our performance and songwriting. The, The performances were getting faster. They were getting louder, um, there was a lot more screaming there was, you know, um, and 
so the, the music had kind of evolved. Yeah. And whether that's in response or just as an evolution, I, yeah, yeah. I can't really say. But the recording experience was really interesting just because in juxtaposition to what we'd just gone through with the previous record was much more stripped down. And, and when you listen to them side by side, it's really interesting, both from a songwriting perspective and from a sonic and perspective. And a sonic perspective, yeah. yeah. But, but was that still being funded by Hollywood at that point? I think I think the way it went down was they re, they funded the recording, um, and then we handed it in, and they didn't feel like they heard a single, or you know some version of this doesn't seem complete. There's something mm-hmm. else we need here. I don't want to put words in their mouths, but it was some version of that. Like yeah. this doesn't feel finished to me, or whatever it is. And so I think we went back in and recorded another song in a different studio. We added a song to the record. Um, uh, which I don't know now what song that was, but uh, and then we handed it in, and then they kind of sat on it mm-hmm. for a while, and it got really frustrating, and things got tense in the band, um, and then they ended up through over what course of time or what negotiation ended up dropping us with the record, meaning we're going to let you guys out of your contract and we're going to let you have this record that you recorded that we didn't put out. Right. Right. Um, which I think was, you know, uh, a testament to our lawyer or our manager at that time. Sure. Negotiating sure. a good deal behind the scenes, nothing to do with me. Yeah. And, uh, at then at that point it was like, we need to figure out what the next step is. And pretty much by then I was done. Like I was mm. just, okay, I've done this a couple times. Um, I don't want to go out shopping for yet another label. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even know if the, if I would articulate that. It was really just about the way I felt about my life and where I was, and mm. and wh- I wanted to do other things, and I wasn't able to um, articulate that that was I want to go write or or I want to go travel or I want to have a family. It was just this boiling sense of dissatisfaction that I was feeling about the career choice I'd made. And that was really in in direct response to just being disappointed. I was being, to a certain degree, a, a pouty brat. And again, like I said, I wasn't realizing the cool stuff I had gotten to do. Sure. I was being disappointed by the commercial failure or by being dropped again. Um, and and I think that those things all kind of wound up leading me out of the band and then for a while out of music. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that happens to... Or can easily happen, especially because you, you know, are so passionate about it. And most people are really passionate about what they're doing. You know, if you're going to go into a life as an artist, which is hard, you know, you could be poor, maybe you're never going to get signed or whatever. It, it can, you can easily get frustrated. And then sort of when your expectations are yanked up so high, you know, and, and then dropped and then yanked up so high again and then dropped, you're like, just fuck this. You know, yeah. there's got to be something better to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the passion was a piece of it. The disappointment disappointment was a piece of it. Um, my poor response was a piece of it. And and my ego got inflated, and, and my expectations got skewed. And, um, you know, I just was at a place where I wasn't enjoyed, enjoying doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas when I came out of Rydell High, I had no doubt that I was going to continue to play drums. Right. Um, I came out of that situation, and I just drinking too much and pouting too much and whining and moaning too much and generally making everybody around me unhappy and mostly me. Right. Uh, Right. And, uh, so through a sort of 
painful series of circumstances just kind of decided like this needs to be done now and I need to move on to whatever the next thing is going to be yeah. as scared as I was. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and, and then that record that I played on, um, Jeff Solomon, the bass player then left right, the right. band, uh, I think a year after I did or mm-hmm. some, some period of time. Um, and then they got a new rhythm section and they sold that record to TVT. Yeah. Um, so then I had this really bizarre experience of watching a record that I played on, um, get promoted and be uh-huh. being toured and reading press about it and seeing videos and and uh that that was emotionally very trying is that what they did is it filled me with doubt whereas i was sure that i needed to leave the band i don't think i was emotionally prepared for now you're to like go, wait a minute wait you're going on without me <laughs> yeah how dare you <laughs> yeah yeah and you know and and that record did what it did and and i lived through that and the mm-hmm. band lived through that and then um those guys went off and did some czar stuff, and then they started a really cool project called Monster Squad, yes. and they were doing all that. And then uh, <laughs> that will three... be the subject of another podcast. Yes, right. Well, <laughs> you have to get Whalen and, and Dan Kernan here, right? Um, and then three, four, five years ago, a friend of ours was moving, uh, leaving the state of California and moving back east to take a job. And we had a big going away party and people were going to go up and play and there was going to be a back line. And we decided to secretly get together and because these were all of our closest friends oh, and that's how it happened. learn, learn four czar songs again. <laughs> yeah. right? We had to relearn them and we played. Does and anyone that, have a copy of the CD? <laughs> well, that's just it. Yeah. Right. Um, although there, we'd played them enough on the road and in yeah. rehearsal that like there, there is a, even now there's muscle memory muscle, yeah, to playing breakup or playing silver shifter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we played those songs and that was fun and it felt good to be around each other again. And, and it, 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 for me, it felt right again. It felt like, well, this is what it's supposed to be. It's just well, us playing no with our again. friends it's for just, our friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I think to a certain degree, like that just like I cracked because of like uh, major label um, disappointment. Yeah. Um, and so it felt good. And then that we, you know, we played a couple more times and then we were going to let's record some songs. Let's record the old music. Let's record some new music. And that ended up resulting two years ago now in an EP called the dark stuff Yeah, that um, was put out by a friend of ours uh, at a company called Adara. And uh, you know, that's fun, but you know, it's gotten some little bit of licensing and you know, a few people have got to hear it and it's gotten played on some indie um, digital radio stations and, and yeah. you're kind of back to making music for the sake of making music. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I really like Jeff's new stuff and, and, mm-hmm. uh, he continues to blow me away as a songwriter. I mean, one of the things about being a drummer that's really interesting is I feel like in my experience that like the drummer gets to stay the closest to being a fan of anybody else in the band, right? You've got just, a, just enough that's distance. True, yeah. That you're, you're behind, you're watching them too, you yeah. know, from behind the band as opposed to being in front. But. Well, there's the physical distance, but there's also like, like, again, in my case, I'm not a songwriter, mm-hmm. right? So I'm, I'm the drummer in the band. Um, I'm really a fan of Jeff Whalen's songwriting. I'm really a fan of Kevin Rydell's songwriting. And so it, it allows you to kind of split the difference. Um, whereas I think that if you're the songwriter or the lead singer, like, I think you're, you have to be so in what you're doing. At least this is my observation. I've uh-huh. never done it that you don't have that sort of like admiration of what's going on around you because you're playing a role in it, but you're not responsible for it. <sighs> yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I think also being, especially if you're the front person and you're the lyricist, it's really like you're bearing, you know, 
you're not just doing a physical act. You're sort of bearing some ideas and part of your soul, or even if you're doing it in an elliptical way, mm-hmm. you know, well, you're you're singing this shit to like people in the crowd and like you know not knowing really how they're going to respond. So, the question you asked a few minutes ago about you know jokingly about my going solo, yeah. Again, I equate everything to being in bands because I was in bands for so long and my experience of being in bands. And so it really does feel like I'm stepping from behind the drum kit and going to the front of the stage. Absolutely. Um, and that's it's it's a little bit scary because I've always been the guy behind the drum set. And, you know, specifically in Czar, on top of that, I was in a cowboy hat and mirrored sunglasses. Like, I, like it seems like I went to pretty great pains for nobody to really know who I was. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Um, or to be like the archetypal, like I'm the rock dude, you know, yeah. crazy rock drummer, woohoo! Yeah, you know, yeah. It, so which is it, itself can be a way of you know anonymizing yourself by adopting this other personality. Yeah, I, I think that that's totally valid, and and uh, you know people would call me on that occasionally, and I would just be like, this like this this is how I get through. This it's is how I feel comfortable, yeah. right? It's like it's, we're putting on a show. We're putting on a show, anyway. Um, and uh, so, but but now I have that feeling of like you know, as a friend of mine uh, said the other day, uh, she was asking me about my book that's coming out, and she was like, are you excited? Are you scared? And she was just asking kind of all the right questions and being very caring and supportive, mm-hmm. and she kind of just looked at me and she goes. Yeah, you're really putting yourself out there in a big way. And I was like, yeah, thanks for giving voice to all my fears. <laughs> right. It was right before you read and you're like, I, I, I can't talk now. Yeah. So getting back to your new life. So uh, you wrote a novel way back in 2001. You just wrote a whole giant novel. And then you obviously did you write anything after that or was that just like a six month like blah here's my novel and then didn't come back to it until many years later or something yeah i mean that's really how it went down i I wrote the novel i showed it to a few people Mm -hmm. um got introduced to a literary agent or two through some Mm. friends of friends Mm -hmm. they read it said that they thought the writing was really good but it was way too bizarre yeah for them to feel like they could sell it to anybody so you and, got some positive feedback at least. Yeah, and my friends, you know, the friends that I allowed to read it um, were like, you know, this is crazy and intense and sprawling and all over the place, but there's something in here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I ended up just kind of like, eh, and, and just kind of put it aside. Uh, did pursue music a little bit again, then kind of like got the bug, like, hey, wait a second. I, I finally got clear-headed about it, right? And stopped being... Um, so self-absorbed and like disappointed and like wallowing in my misery um, and went like, wait a second. Like the thing I always liked was playing drums yeah, you know, with yeah. my friends. And so then, you know, did some stuff with uh, Ken Lane, put out mm-hmm. a couple of records as Ken Lane and the Corvids um, and have played on other friends stuff just on like, oh, this is fun. Let's do this. And have had, you know, studios and, and, and projects going and they've either produced music or they haven't, but we get together and we make noise. And Jeff told and me you just got a lockout again. So I haven't. We have a lockout <laughs> again in downtown LA, and my drums are permanently set up. And nice. Damn it! If I never even go down there, at least my at drums least are set up somewhere. It. Yeah. I can go play drums if I want to. It's true. That's if almost you more to be in downtown LA. <laughs> it's, it's almost more for my kids at this point. Like you know, like my ten year old is is uh, she takes piano lessons and and she takes guitar and sometimes because her teacher's cool they'll. If she's interested in learning the drum track, then they'll play drums too. And oh, yeah. so she's like, when can I play your drum set? And and uh, I'm at this stage now where I'm like, 
well, geez, it'd be fun to go play with my friends, but it would also be really cool to like go jam with my kids. Yeah. And yeah. so um, it was almost more to facilitate that. And, you know, and I have to be honest with you guys and with myself, it is a little bit of a glorious store, uh, glorified storage space. But nonetheless, <laughs> sure. the gear is set up. There is electricity. There's a, there's a fridge. It's legit. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's secure because I have a horror, horror story about practicing in an actual storage space where it was just uh, sheetrock. And the storage space next to us was open, and so someone just cut through the sheetrock and stole like guitars and stuff. Holy wow! No, yeah, um, yeah. as I long as it's like concrete or something. I had fine. a drum set stolen out of a car once. I was just too lazy or drunk to take my drums in that right, night, and right. I came out in the morning, and my drums were gone. Oh, that's the worst. Um, uh, no, no, this is legit. This is like you know one of those complexes that has oh, yeah. like eighty gazillion studios, and yeah. there's loud rock being played around the clock. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A real stinky studio. Yeah, I understand. So you put the uh, the novel down, you talk to some literary agents, you get, you know, hey, good writing, but come back when you have something less bizarre. <laughs> how, so how did you decide to do it again? Well, you know, I mean, uh, it, the progression is, is, is uh, long and meandering and boring, but I, you know, there was a, a number of life changes I had to make or changes that happened in my life that... Um, kind of finally got me into a non-frantic head state like mm. um was one having thing, kids like part of it well yeah definitely mm-hmm. um and that that one was like the really the point at which i was like it's it's like to a certain degree if you're going to embrace the the quote-unquote rock and roll lifestyle um it's it's forgivable to be manic and crazy and frantic and and act like a lunatic to a certain degree right um <clears throat> But once you're responsible for somebody else, um, it's less cute or <laughs> yeah. it, it becomes more apparent that it was never cute. And, uh, and so that really changed a lot of things for me. It was also just a time in my life where I was ready to kind of like finally calm down a little bit. I'd yeah. always been like a very over the top high energy personality mm-hmm. and I uh, didn't always do a good job of channeling that in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and having a family and having kids and the responsibilities to go along with that did a had a pretty good calming effect on me in general and allowed me to focus. And then once I was focused, um, I realized that I had been clinging to like, you know, being out of control as oh, a yeah. sort of, as a sort of a personality trait or a lifestyle or a shield or however you want to put it. Um, once I put that down and said, I don't need that anymore. Things kind of came together in my life. I was a happier person. I'm in, I'm in a, great marriage with a wonderful woman and we've got great kids and I've got, you know, I got very little to complain about. And so at that point, my head was clear enough that I could wrap my mind around what it might be like to write a novel again. Yeah. And I was really into Northern European mystery fiction at that time. I was reading a lot of it. Really? Yeah, like Joe Nesbo and that kind of stuff. And um, I just had that moment where like a story popped in my head. And I was like, wow, I, I feel like I could actually do this now. Like I feel like I could sit down and put in the work that it would take. This is hours and hours and hours and hours to do yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, and I never learned how to type. I'm a hunt and peck typer, oh, which is wow. just brutal, right? Um, you need the voice dictation software. Well, we're getting there, yeah. right? Yeah. And then they'll just write the book for you. Yeah. Um, the, so, we, uh, so I wrote the book and, 
you know, the the character and the concept came wholly formed. And is this your novel? This is my novel. This, so this is so this again. Is, you're not like I'm going to write a short story. You're like, nope, going right back into the novel. I, I not only that, like I, I, uh, I. Uh, and a three a it trilogy. A, it's a trilogy, yeah, right? Of course, it's a, it's a presumed trilogy. We'll see if I write and publish it. <laughs> um, but it, the concept. You know, I grew up in the South Bay here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach, and um, kind of always hung around. Was not you know natively one of these bros at the beach with like board shorts and mm-hmm. surf all day and party all night and being a punk band and just like you know there's like really cool salt of the earth blue collar yeah. beach guys. Yeah. Um, but I always hung around them, right? With the bands were a nexus, hanging out at the right parties with those guys and getting to know them. Um, and I always had a kind of an admiration for their dedication to the lifestyle, right? Like they started skating when they were 11 and, you know, now we're in our forties and they're still skating. You yeah. Know? Oh yeah. And, and there's like, you know, they, they figured it out young and they know what their thing is and they live in paradise. So why not stay there? Right. Yeah. The beaches in Southern California are great. Yeah. Why would you move? It's true. Yeah. Why yeah. would you put on anything besides board shorts unless you absolutely have to. Right. Um, and so I always, you know, through, through like Facebook or running into old friends, it, I, I became like really fascinated with guys who just stuck to that lifestyle and like this weird kind of jealousy I had for like them having figured it out and stuck yeah. to it. Yeah. Whereas like I felt like I had to go explore the world and try exactly. all these crazy I gotta things. do this thing and like yeah. have my expectations dashed, you know, and like stress out about it. Why can't I just live at the beach? Right. I always wonder that too, you know. That's partly again what the podcast is like. Why do we do these things? You know, it's a hard lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's it's. Why not just read a book? Right. Let somebody else read. <laughs> I can write a book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I gotta write. <laughs> so so then it became this like examination of, my, of of how I felt about that, and so there was this juxtaposition of the guy that I became, and then the guys who just kind of stayed to that lifestyle and seem happy and content and are living a really cool life in mm-hmm. Southern California. And so out of that, um, I created this character named Greg Salem, who is one of those guys who's lived at the beach his whole life and and uh, sang in a regionally kind of infamous punk band. Mm-hmm. But his brother, who's his guitar player, dies in under suspicious circumstances, and he becomes a cop to solve it. So now we've got a punk rock cop. And that was so that was my that that was what set up the conflict. Yeah, punk rock cop. And he's a cop on the other side of LA. So he's able to kind of compartmentalize his life when he's back at the beach. He's the, the he's board the shorts, yeah, tattooed yeah. punk rock singer guy, but he's also this trained cop who's kind of secretly wanting to figure out who is his, who killed his brother. And so that set up the action. And then I literally just like sat down and wrote page one and just wrote it to the end, which is called pantsing, right? Like they, there's, there's plotters. <laughs> it's this yeah. thing I've come, I've become aware of, right? It's, it's there, there are apparently people who are plotters, which is they write out a timeline and they develop characters and they yeah, know where the yeah. story's going. And then there's pantsers because they just write by the seat of their pants. Right. And so it's just sort of like, right, right, right. And the deeper you get in, the coolest thing happens. Like you get to a point where you know the character so well, or you've spent so much time with the character that they start telling you what they're going to do. It mm-hmm. starts to take on a life of its own in mm-hmm. your head, which is like mind blowing to experience for the first time. Right. Cause you literally have these moments where it's like, Oh, and then you do that. How cool. Yeah. I wouldn't like, even have thought that you could do that. I can't type fast enough to right. keep up with what you're telling me to write. And then at other times you'll write two, three, four pages. And basically you, you can imagine the character standing still folding their arms and just shaking their head and going, oh, wow. like, I would never do that. Yeah. Dude. yeah. You know? So it was a really interesting experience to write it and, and then, you know, spend four years fixing it. 
editing it, uh. changing characters, changing, you know. So I put a lot of work in over the course of time as I got a better understanding of the mystery and, and crime community, as I got the feedback of writers who are way better and more experienced than mm-hmm. me, as I got feedback from editors and literary agents and publishers, all of the feedback I got, all the little snippets, all the little encouragement I got from this awesome community of people helped me shape the story and and shape the novel. And uh, I submitted it to a local publisher uh, called Prospect Park and had a meeting with them and... Uh, they read it and got about a quarter of the way through, and and the woman sent me an email that said, listen, this isn't really for us. This is perfect for Tyson at Rare Bird Books, and so she referred me. That's great. Um, it was really fantastic, um, and I met Tyson, and he is a guy who's been in rock bands, and um, you know, actually for all of my sensing that there was a lot of overlap in indie rock and indie publishing, he's actually created a publishing company that actually embodies it. He takes an indie rock aesthetic and puts it into his indie publishing company. And it's really fascinating to watch. And a lot of the stuff he publishes is either about music or written by former musicians or current musicians or has some sort of music, musical bent, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, and it just felt like we we clicked, and it really felt like it was a good home for me. And so I'm thrilled that my uh, my novel's going to come out this October from Rare Bird Books. And then you said that after you had sort of finished the novel, you started writing short fiction, and that helped you go back to to the the novel and like change it. And I learned to write. Do self editing. Well, there, yeah, there was a lot of that. And then there was also like, you know, friends that I trusted with the sort of like, hey, don't tell anybody I'm writing a novel, but would yeah, you read yeah, my novel, you, please? Yeah. Because I don't really want to go public with it because yeah. if I don't publish it, then, yeah. you know. Um, so I went through a lot of that and I had some very caring, trusted friends who agreed to read it. And, and all I asked of them is that they be honest with me and make it better. Yeah. And so I got some really great feedback and some hard to swallow feedback, quite a lot of hard to swallow feedback. Cause You're you don't like, want to hear my favorite part. I yeah. can't take that out. Right. Yeah, exactly. There was, there was definitely yeah. some of that. I mean, um, but going through that was a baby step to then being able to go to people who are actual writers that I met at, you know, writing conventions mm-hmm. or that I met at writing conferences or functions and, or at bookstores. And would you read it now? And, them having no emotional investment in my ego or, yeah. or, or some long history with me, they just give you very thorough feedback, and they they will praise you if you deserve it. But then I started going, man, there's a lot of value in this peer review, um, and I really wanted to get more of it. So I was like, I, I need to start sh- uh, writing and publishing outside mm-hmm. of this character um, and actually learning how to write. Because all I had done was sit down and write a story. But that didn't make me a writer. Right. And I'm still not a writer, but I've gone further down that road to getting better at the craft and trying to sort of perfect what my voice can be. Um, and that's all been from the publishers who published my short stories and all of the people in this crime and mystery community who've just been so fantastically supportive of me. Um, and again, that gets back to it really makes me feel like I'm in a music scene again. Yeah. It also seems like it gets back to the idea that we talked about way earlier that you really got to work at this stuff. You know, no one just hands you an opportunity. And despite the fact that, because I think everyone who, who, who was in the punk rock scene or, or rock of a certain genre, it was, you know, live fast, die young. You don't think about, well, what's going to happen later, but you were always a guy who worked really hard at whatever you were doing. And I think that's a key that, you know, a lot of people, don't necessarily people who aren't artists don't necessarily understand that it's like 
well, you're just, you know, writing, that's got to be so easy. It's like, well, yeah, it's, but it's kind of a job, you know. You really have to apply yourself. You do, um, if you want to do anything with it. Um, yeah. Same with music. Um, yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with s- sitting around your house and strumming your acoustic guitar while you watch football on Sundays. Yeah. Totally enjoyable. <laughs> um, or having a studio and going and setting up your drums and jamming with your friends mm-hmm. and playing covers and with no intention of recording anything right. or ever performing anywhere. Yeah. It's simply because you enjoy being in this environment, doing this thing. Right. Nothing wrong with those things. But once you decide that you want to do it in a way that produces something that is consumable, it's um, suddenly you have to put in a ton of work to even try to get something out that's remotely listenable or readable. Or um, remotely sort of competitive, you know, quote, competitive in the marketplace as to what it is. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, so I think I've been, I was lucky in bands that I fell in with guys who wrote pretty poppy music um, or that's just the kind of drummer I was. I fit that kind of music, whatever the circumstance was. Um, I never really felt like I had to think too much about the commercialism of any of the bands I was in. The music we played was poppy enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on the success of both the, the bands we're talking about, not poppy enough or commercial enough for mainstream success. Um, and with my writing, I think that, you know, I, I haven't really thought a lot about how commercial it is or isn't. It's interesting to get feedback that says it is or isn't. Um, (laughs) I have thought a lot about, you know, trying to quote unquote build a writer's platform and uh, be at least put myself in a position where I can get it out to the world Mm -hmm. um, in, in a way that goes sort of beyond um, handing it to a few of my friends and calling it a day. I want to I want to make an actual stab at it, and so that takes a little bit of work on the marketing side and 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 the sort of brand building side, and and that's part of the work too. Um, you know, writing is art, publishing is business. And, yeah. And for me, that distinction is clear, and it may seem like an oversimplification, but it's just sort of how I approach it. Well, you've also got. I mean, in addition to just the writing, you have a whole other thing that you're doing around it with your own interviews. And then what is your, uh, the audio series? Oh yeah. So, uh, one of the things I quickly learned when I became aware of the idea that I could learn from other writers and it's, it's hilarious, right? Cause if you, if you talk to writers, they're like, how did you not know that? <laughs> like, right. But like, it t- I was a little slow on the it's uptake. Panting. Don't and you know that? Yeah. Right. Everyone knows that. Yeah. So I, I was like, well, I need to meet more writers and, and. I don't have enough free time to simply just go around and hang around bookstores or go to writer's conference after mm-hmm. writer's conference. You know, it's also not cheap to do that. Um, but there, via the internet and via social media, I can get to know people and get to know their work. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to tap my journalism background and do two things. One, learn more about publishing and learn more about the people whose books I was reading and that I admired. And by publishing on a blog my interviews with them, helping them spread yeah. the word about their thing. Yeah. And so it, it helped me dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't, it's, it's been, I can put no value on those Q&As I've done with all these authors. Like I'm coming up on a year of it and I've done one every week. So I'm coming up on 52. Wow. Um, and I have learned at least five things from every one of those interviews yeah. that I did. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate that those people have given me their time. Um, and for, I count a lot of them as friends now. Um, 
and and so that that was something that that has really helped me open my eyes to what the possibilities are in this world, what the limitations are, what the struggles are as well. Yeah. But how to approach my writing as a job, how to approach my writing as hard work um, that's about creating the best manuscript that you can create and then just sort of letting the market decide. And do you think that signing, you know, with an indie publisher is sort of like it would be to sign with an indie label now where it's okay, they're going to put your record out or your book out, but you know, you're going to have to do promotion and stuff yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no budget anymore for, we're going to put you on tour. It's like, okay, well you'll have a book, you know, and they'll promote it of course, you know, to the extent they can to their, their, their readership. But it's like, it's up to you to make a career out of it. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's, Again, the similarities with indie publishing and, and indie uh, record houses uh, is is really clear to me. Yeah. Um, I think that the the publishing world, maybe writers have had to promote themselves and market themselves and get themselves out there more. Um, I think there used to be in in the record industry um, labels at all sizes. Part of what you got was marketing. Yeah, more of a machine. Um, and and now it seems like labels are more of a distribution thing mm-hmm. and that you need to do a lot more of your own marketing and a lot more of your own, you know, basically you have to tour a, a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's what it seems to me. Um, and with the, with, with indie publishing, it seems like those guys have always, those, those men and women have always had to go out and promote themselves. Okay. Um, and act as it sort of independent business units. And, and I'm prepared to do that to a certain degree. I'm talking to you on a podcast right now. I, we just came from a reading. Yeah. I'm going to a writer's conference uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina at the beginning of October. Um, doing a reading at Litquake in San Francisco in the middle of October. I set up a panel at my local library with some other crime writers for the middle of October. You're a monster. Well, that it, energy. Yeah. There's, <laughs> it's there's, still there. It, yeah. But yeah, but the, but the energy's focused. Now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, but we'll see. Yeah. I, I, it's all a great unknown to me whether or not I'm going to enjoy publishing. I have no idea. Good question. Yeah. Well, you're jumping into it completely because you have a novella too now. And a yeah, I have a novella play? coming out on a different publisher from Florida called Down and Out Books. Mm-hmm. And they're putting out a novella that I actually wrote in Florida on vacation when I was there with my family. <laughs> um, and it's called Crosswise. And that comes out next March on Down and Out. And then tell me, so I read the story. It's called Fix Me, isn't it? Uh, the story that is going to be a screenplay now. Oh right, yeah. So in um, publishing, I've I've been lucky enough to be able to publish uh, some short stories now, and I published one earlier this year. Was it was part of a contest? It was like you you submitted your stories. They curated a list of I think it was five or ten, um, and then put it up for public voting, and then one story got picked mm-hmm. they put up a sample of each of the stories oh it's okay and then they published the whole story that got the most votes ah got it and so they my story fixed me i was very lucky got got picked and they published it and um i got some really good feedback from this one um it's about um a young woman on a fixie riding through los angeles being chased by an older guy in a muscle car mm-hmm. um and then there's a twist and then there's a couple <laughs> twists um uh and so a, uh, an acquaintance, a friend of mine that I know through Jeff Solomon from Czar, um, said he really liked the story and that he's an indie filmmaker and he has a production company and he does a lot of commercial work. And he said he was really interested in, in potentially turning it into a script and shooting it. And I was like, that's fantastic. Let's do it, right? Yeah. Like, I'm, in a, I'm in a yes mode. Let's go. Absolutely, Let's do yeah. And uh, 
you know, but you don't want to push, right? It's like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like to make an indie film. What, what am I signing this guy up for? So I kind of backed off and just let him tell me if he was still interested. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were on a family camping trip and they were there with their family and he took me aside and he said, um, I am really interested in this. We should talk more about it. Next time I saw him, he offhandedly um, just goes, oh, hey, by the way, uh, I talked to a production company and they're going to fund it. And I You're was like, like what? what is it? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, so like I, in the course of like an afternoon, all of a sudden it was like, we're really doing this thing. And we met and we've talked about the script and we're going to co-write the thing as, as far as I know. And okay. we've started that process, which is exciting for me. It's another venue for me to write. And I'm going to learn a great deal from him again. There's this thing called asking people for help. <laughs> um, I'm learning from other people. And, um, I think I'll learn a lot about screenwriting from him and I think that'll be a fun adventure. But, um, you know, I was like, I, I, I was so assuming that it was going to be like, he's going to shoot it on a GoPro camera and we're going to have to use czar music as the bed music. So I'll get my buddy. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll have to act in it. <laughs> Dressed and up like, like a girl these, are, these are the ideas I came yeah, up to the first yeah. meeting and he literally just goes, Oh yeah, that's cool. And he, and he turned the computer screen to me and he showed me IMDB an actor that I recognized. And he goes, I was thinking this guy, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and he started talking about like, you know, hiring uh, stunt coordinators and, you know, uh, taking out licensing to shut down streets in Los Angeles. And, you know, we're going to rent a muscle car that matches the description. In the, and I was like, and you're like, oh, it's a movie. Yeah, movie. it's like an actual short film. And, and at that point, I, I kind of sat back in my chair and I just said, listen, dude just please invite me to the after party because I don't really feel like this has anything to do with me anymore. But he's keeping me involved and it's been really great. Um, his name's David Brandvik and his production company is Thinker Feeler. Mm. Do you have any you know, parting words of advice for an aspiring artist in huh. these days? No. Say they're just starting out. Oh boy, just starting out? Uh, you know, go for it, dude. And there you have it, go for it. I think that is... Probably the best advice that you can give anyone who's embarking on an artistic pursuit. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I know it was a long one, but uh, it was a good one. It's quality and quantity. That's what we aim for here at Make It Big. Anyway, I will be seeing you soon. I have more episodes that are currently in the editing process. I hope to get them up soon. Maybe I'll see you out at a Radishes show Uh, please go to, oh, my new website, thanks to my awesome wife, Corrine. PaulStinsonMusic.com is now up and running. I think I had plugged it before it was actually uh, posted, so sorry about that. (laughs) But you can check out my my music there. All of the podcasts are hosted there. Uh, Also on the SoundCloud page, Paul Stinson Music. And... So iTunes, the podcast is on iTunes, but through some mystery of technology, the artwork is wrong. Uh, If you go into the podcast itself, the artwork is right, but if you're just scrolling through trying to find it, it's wrong. We're trying to fix it. We're aware. But anyway, if you subscribe to it on iTunes, it's possible that it could disappear for a day or two while we try and work that problem out. But, you know, small things. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. You can get in touch with me. Go to the website. uh, Send me an email at paulstinsonmusic at gmail.com. I mean, paulstinsonmusic, yes, at gmail. Uh, And that's it.
We'll see you the next time around. I love it when you tell me that we're gonna be in movies. They make a